I want to try something uh, new this morning. This is an informal survey, okay? I want you to raise your hand if in this week behind us, you exercised less than you thought you should have. Okay? All right? How about you spent more time on the internet, social media, news websites, than was good for you, and you know you shouldn't have? How many of you? All right? Uh, how about this? Uh, you procrastinated. You put off doing something good, even though you knew it was the right thing to do. Let's see hands. So the true procrastinators are waiting to raise their hands. <laughs> raise your hand if you ended up at the Wendy's in Short Hills at 1 a.m. on Friday where you bought two bacon cheeseburgers which you ate in the car on the way home even though you know this is a really bad idea. <laughs> I did that. <laughs> and I did that because sometimes... I don't have the willpower to do the good things which I know I should do or to not do the bad things which I've decided I should not do. And I know that I'm not alone in that. All of us in here know what it's like to make a good decision, to say this is something which is worth doing and then to decide in our minds to do it, but then when it comes round to it, we, we never actually make it happen, right? Or, or to decide this is not something that I should do, and, and to be very clear about that in our minds, but then never uh, to be able to keep that promise that we've made. And the reason is that we lack the thing which we need, which is self-control. Uh, I've been saying each week what the world needs is men and women who believe in Jesus and trust him, and as they trust Jesus, they do the good things in the world which the world needs. Uh, we've been spending time on this, and the truth about uh, the decisions which we will make as, as followers of Christ, which are good decisions. And I know a lot of you have been having good thoughts about the things that you should do or the things you should leave aside. But that decision will never turn into action unless we have this virtue, which is our subject this morning, and that is the virtue of self-control. Peter has been our teacher, uh, and I want to begin this morning by going back to him and, and this is going to be a review if you've been here each week, but if this is your first uh, Sunday with us, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. This will be new for you, but I want to lay out the big ideas that Peter has in mind when he teaches men and women of faith how to find their way to the place where they are able to follow through on the good decisions they make. Okay, here are the big ideas in Peter. First, and this is critical, Peter believed that God in his grace has given the gift of salvation to every person who would decide to try to trust Jesus. Not because they'd earned it, but because that's how God is. He's gracious. And with that gift of salvation, this is Peter's fundamental thought, with that gift comes everything required to live the life that God wants us to live. We've got everything we need. That's the first idea in Peter's mind. Uh, the second one, which comes right after, is that this is the kind of gift which will never mean anything unless you open it. And he doesn't put it in that way, but if you imagine receiving a gift that you really wanted to receive, but then you left it wrapped. Now, that's what happens with faith when we don't make every effort to support our faith in the way that it needs to be supported. That's Peter's second idea. You need to work to make this gift express itself in the world in the way it was meant to. 
With that in mind, then Peter lays out the path that every one of us who is going to try our best to follow Jesus is completely free to follow. And that is the path of working at the virtues which support faith, like a foundation supports a house which is worth building. All right, with that in mind, I want you to see again the way Peter opens up his description of the virtues which make faith work. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Look at what he says here. For this very reason, uh, the, the reason is since you've been given everything you need by God's grace, you must make every effort to support your faith. That is Peter's way of saying it's time to get to work now that you've been given this gift. You must make every effort to support your faith with goodness. This is what we talked about two weeks ago. The simple goodness that characterized Jesus' way in the world, that's what we should work at. Now, after uh, discussing how Jesus was good, we saw that sometimes it's hard to know what God is like, and that's why Peter goes on to say, and you must support your goodness with knowledge. That was last week. Uh, Knowing the good that God wants us to do, uh, because there are many ideas about God in the world which are wrong. But knowing the right ideas, that supports our goodness. It gives us what we need uh, to have in order to know what the good is which we should do. But as we've just now discussed, knowing the right thing isn't enough because you can know the right thing and still end up at Wendy's. <laughs> and and, and it, you know, on Friday at one, it's good, but in the morning on Saturday, it's not as good because what you need is the next virtue. And that's why Peter goes on to write, and you must support your knowledge with self-control. What I want for us as a group, and I want it for me and for all of you here, is for each one of us to experience the promise that Jesus gave his followers, which was, if you trust me, then you will go out into the world and do the good works that you saw me doing. And I want that because the world needs it. And I, I had a conversation this very week in which someone said, I, I like what you're preaching about, but still, there's no chance that you're gonna set the world right. It's just too messed up. And I know that feeling, but I want us this morning to, to take our view and put it on the place where we can actually manage something, and that is with our own selves. Because according to Peter, we can actually grow so that our knowledge turns into action as we focus on this virtue. Let's narrow it down, the virtue of self-control. I want to start with you uh, getting some clarity on just what this virtue is, just what it is to be a person, a man or a woman who has self-control. The ancient Greeks, for, for hundreds of years before Peter wrote his letter, they, they were obsessed, in effect, with the good life. And what they described and discussed with each other was very simply, what are the virtues that result in the kind of life that we're meant to have? Uh, 350 years before Peter wrote his letter, uh, the, the philosopher Aristotle wrote what, what became one of the most influential pieces on ethics that really has ever been written, in which he describes the path that men and women ought to follow if they're going to have a life which is good. You, you've heard of Aristotle. Uh, if you have not heard his name, your thinking about the world, all of us in the West, has been shaped by this particular philosopher. For him, Self-control was one of those virtues which was absolutely fundamental because unless it existed beneath all of the other good things you decided you should do, you would never get there. You would constantly be a person who was deciding, I should do this, but then never doing it. Or I should stay away from this and finding yourself doing it anyway. 
And so Aristotle, in a very clear and a crisp way, defined self-control like this. Listen to these words. Self-control is the ability to be guided into action by what one knows instead of by what one feels. Now think about that. Right At a certain time of the day, I know that I should not drive to that particular proprietor of food and purchase their items. But then later on when I'm sleepy, I feel the need. You see it? And you know this too. Uh, in whatever way you find yourself drawn to go against what you know and instead with what you feel. This is a moment where what you need is self-control. Aristotle describes the man who has self-control as the one who is ready to abide by the results of his calculations. His actions follow what is thought out and reasonable rather than being directed by his passions, his feelings, or his impulses. Uh, men and women are most likely to go the wrong directions when their passions lead them. And there are really a few ways where this happens most often, according to Aristotle. Pleasure, honor, gain, and anger. Those are the places where we lose control. For pleasure. Uh, for honor, to get people to think a certain way about us. Uh, to gain something for ourselves or anger. Uh, think of it for a moment. Uh, have you lost your control because you were angry? Aristotle paints a remarkable picture to show what this looks like. Imagine a dog lying on the living room floor. A knock comes at the door, and that dog starts to bark wildly and aggressively without knowing whether the visitor is a friend or a foe. That is what it looks like to lose your control because of anger. I know that one of you is going to say to your spouse later, you dog, <laughs> don't do that. Another image he paints. Imagine a city in which the, the legislators are perfectly wise. Together they devise the, the perfect set of rules and laws to govern that city. Which, if everyone followed those rules, everything would be perfect. And yet, no one who lives there abides by the rules. Instead, they all do whatever they feel like based on their passions. That is what it looks like to be a person who lacks self-control. Uh, let's make this modern. The man who lacks self-control is the man who is walking along and he knows he doesn't need another pair of shoes, but as he sees them there in the window, he can't help himself, and so he goes and buys another pair. Is that me? <laughs> Are you checking up to make sure I'm consistent from last week? <laughs> okay, we're good. I know, <laughs> that's amazing. I know someone's thinking, no, no, it's the women, the women who buy more shoes. No, it's not. There's plenty of guys who have too many shoes. There are. Or it's, it's the woman who knows she, she should look away, but she keeps looking. Even though she's married, she knows it's wrong, but she lets her imagination go as she looks. That's the, the person who lacks self-control. It's the young man who knows that he should not be going on, uh, in this way on the internet. And, and he can't help himself. And he goes and he feels bad about it, but that's where he ends up. Uh, it's the lonely person. And the loneliness is really painful. 
and she chooses to medicate herself against that loneliness in a way that works now, but she knows it's not going to work down the, uh, down the road. Tomorrow she'll feel awful, but now, but she lacks self-control. You can play this out in any way, right? It's the friend who's been hurt, and she knows that she has to take a step toward forgiveness, a proactive step, but it's easier just to not say anything, and so she stays away. Or the spouse who knows that, that what his wife needs is that he would just sit and listen and be quiet. No more good advice, just to listen. And there he sits, and he says it anyway, and he says it again, and then finally he goes in the other room and he sits on the couch by himself. Right? That's the man who knows one hour spent in study after work would just be so much better than one hour watching the sports commentators. But there he is again, flipping through the channels. Here's the thing about self-control. Uh, without it, you never go the good way that you've decided to go because you know. Without it, you always are going the wrong way, even though you don't want to. And this virtue, if you have it, it, it both gives you the freedom to develop into the good man, the good woman that you know you should be, and it prevents you from always going down the path that turns you into someone that you don't want to be. But then it is so hard to control yourself. Is there anyone else in here who feels that? Not in every way. Some of us are very good in some ways, but, but there are, for every one of us, there, there is this temptation, there is this invitation, there is this path that is just, it's so hard for us to control ourselves as we go down it. Listen, I had lunch with a friend a few weeks back, and it was just great. We, we had a, a wonderful meal together. Uh, we sat and enjoyed the best pizza in Summit, use your imagination, and as we were there enjoying this meal, uh, we started to talk about faith, uh, and we talked a little bit about what I had been teaching here, and uh, I asked him, very simply, I asked him, friend, tell me, what is, what is the place where it's hardest for you in faith? Uh, what's the hardest part for you when it comes to following Christ? And he thought about it for a bit. He didn't have anything that came right to mind, but he sent me an email about two days later. Uh, and I want to share it with you. I asked his permission. Uh, he, he emailed me the next day, and here's what he wrote. I thought about your question on the drive home today. Uh, what do you find most difficult in your faith? In short, it is surrendering my will to God's will in all things, even though I know his plan for my life is perfect, and mine is ever so flawed. He didn't use the words, but what he was talking about was self-control. The hardest thing for him was to know, God's will is perfect for me, and I know it, and yet I still have a hard time surrendering my will. That's another way of saying self-control is really hard. Uh, if you can relate to him, okay, then we're all together, all of us here. Uh, he went on to share uh, this, we spoke about St. Paul at lunch today. Uh, that is the Apostle Paul who wrote much of the New Testament. And he sums it up so well in the book of Romans. Uh, if you don't know, in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul writes about this very subject we're discussing, about how hard it is to control yourself. He shared this from Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message. Do some of you know that one? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not exactly a translation from the Greek. It's, it's a very creative way of putting it. Listen to the way uh, it's put there and tell me if this doesn't resonate with some of you. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another. 
doing the things that I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what's best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need even more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. If I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. If you felt like that, you know exactly what it's like to be broken over the fact that you lack the control that you wish you had over yourself. And if you've been there, maybe as I begin this morning, talking about the little things where self-control would be good, you carry in your heart the big things and it hurts you. And there's some relief in hearing Paul say, look, no matter what, I just can't do it. I, I don't want you to get off the hook yet because Peter was right when he wrote to those people who received his letter that they must make every effort to support their knowledge with self-control. There's a reason why he wrote that. And even as Paul can tell us in Romans 7 that he's scandalized by how little control he has, at the same time, not only Peter, but Paul also taught that self-control is what we need and it is within our grasp that we can actually become men and women who do not always follow our feelings but rather are guided by what we know to be best into actions. And listen now. I want you to have that. I do. I want... Each one of you individually. I want Renaissance Church to grow into a church that is a church that has control. Uh, Why? Partly so that we can have the life of faith that God wants us to have individually. Uh, I want you to have the effects of faith that Jesus promised, which is peace and joy and love and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness. You want that too, don't you? You want it so much, the only thing you can do is just sit still and pretend you're just, you're just frozen, right? But, but, but we want it as a church. Uh, so that, that Renaissance Church is not a community that's sort of pulled this way and that by its anxiety or its fear or its worry or, or what it thinks it needs to do to impress that person or this community. No, we, we are meant to be a community that is guided by the reason the sound reason that comes when we apply ourselves to understanding what God calls us to. I'm asking us to grow up as Peter did. And not just Peter, but Paul too. Now, uh, it's, it's, it's ironic in a way. It's, it's astounding uh, that the very same man who wrote those words in Romans 7 about how broken he was over his inability to have control over himself should also teach so eloquently about self-control in another place. And that's what I want us to spend some time on together. Uh, In 1 Corinthians, it's another letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. There he did a masterful job in teaching about self-control. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at it together, and then we're going to find four lessons that are very practical for us today uh, to grow in self-control. In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, there's a passage where he does what many moral teachers in his day and before had done, which is to present a metaphor useful for teaching about how to have the life that we're meant to have. Let's look at that together and then we'll spend some time on it. In chapter 9, verse 24, here's what Paul writes. Do you not know that in a race, 
all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control, there it is, in all things. Now this metaphor which Paul presents is a common metaphor, especially in his day. Because sports were so utterly popular back then, it was common for a moral teacher to use them to make a point. And metaphors do that well. They give you something to imagine, and then seeing in that image, you can learn something that would be hard to learn in a different way. Of course, they're also dangerous because they can lead to misinterpretation. Okay, That is that we could see this image of the athlete and take it in the wrong direction when we try to learn self-control. The wrong direction is very easy to get in this one because we might think that what he's telling us is we have to learn how to beat other people by exercising self-control so we can win. You see it there? Win. And now you're looking around at the person next to you and you're like, I've totally got them in self-control. They're, they're a loser. I got them. That is deadly. That's not what he means. Okay, you have to be very cautious when you learn from a metaphor everywhere, but especially here in Paul. The point is not winning. The point is how you choose to run. Look again at it. The point is that we should run in such a way. What Paul wants his readers to do, and this is what we need to do, is to ask the question, in what way does the winner run so that I can run in that way? Not so that I can beat other people, but so that I can run in that way. And that's what you're meant to do. You're meant to go through the life of faith in this way, in the way in which the person who wins that race goes. How does that person who wins run? Here, that person exercises self-control in all things. And that's the point of this metaphor, to put in the minds of the readers or the listeners in our case, the self-control which athletes exercise, listen now, without which they would never run. And in fact, if we were the first readers, we would know without self-control, they wouldn't even be allowed to get into the competition. Let me give you the background here because the background in this image will help a lot. Uh, we've all heard of the Olympics. The Olympic Games have been running for centuries and centuries. Alongside the Olympics in Paul's day, there were two other uh, very, very popular uh, sports events, and one of them was called the Isthmian Games. Corinth was on an isthmus, and that is so hard for me to say. Did you notice? <laughs> there was a, an actual athletic competition that ran every two years and alternated so that it didn't overlap with the Olympics on the, the uh, land shape there where Corinth was, which in, in the year 51... That competition would have been held, and it's highly likely that Paul camped out in a tent there, right near the stadium, which is close to the church which received this first uh, letter, to witness the games, which thousands of people came to watch. Everyone would have known, listen now, if you were an athlete and you wanted to compete in those games, you had to register 10 months in advance. So almost a full year ahead of time, you had to sign up for the games, and then you had to move from wherever you were to the immediate environment of the stadium where for 10 months straight, you signed up with a trainer and another group of people, all of whom had to follow a strict regimen of diet, exercise, and sleep. And if you didn't follow it for all 10 months, you were not allowed to run in the race. Now, use your imagination 
and picture the kind of dedication and the kind of willpower and the kind of self-control that would be required to be a runner who ran in such a way as to win the race. If we, if we dwell on that for a minute, what we'll see is that this image from Paul, this metaphor, is very helpful for giving practical guidance to us about how to grow in self-control. That's exactly what we're called to do, all of us, okay? Wherever you are in self-control this morning, all right, if you have none, okay, don't get down on yourself. It's time for you to learn a little bit, all right? If you're doing pretty well, you're gonna learn a little more. From this metaphor, there are at least four very simple and concrete lessons. I wanna look at each one um, with you one at a time, and they'll help us, all right, if we take them to heart. The first one which I see is very simply that self-control takes time. Now, this is obvious, but it's worth dwelling on. In a moment like this, when we gather and it's inspiring and we're learning together, we might decide over the course of these 35 minutes that I've made a new decision, I'm gonna have self-control, and then to expect to have it by the end of the day. And that's not how it works. That's not how it worked with those athletes. They signed up 10 months ahead of time and every day for 10 months, they worked at it. And this is true for the virtue of self-control for us. If it's worth having, it's worth working at for a really long time. And so now it's time for all of us to sort of adjust our mental expectation around self-control, around knowledge, which we talked about last week, and goodness, all of these virtues will take time, and to imagine ourselves entering on a path that is gonna take maybe a year to make good progress in. That's lesson number one, okay? So let's be clear. Uh, it's the beginning of June 2017, right? Okay, if we're gathered here, if Renaissance Church is still meeting in this place a year from now, then all of us right now should imagine next year at this time, I'm gonna be better off than I was in self-control. And that is not too long to wait. All right, that's number one. Here's the second lesson, and this is extremely practical. Self-control requires a coach. Right, if you picture these athletes, they did not agree to do 10 months of preparation all alone. Uh, all of them decided to come and then they were all connected with either an individual coach if they had enough resource or with a group, all of whom were guided by a coach who would stand there telling them, it's time for you to do this kind of exercise. Let's see you do it. Uh, it's not okay for you to eat this kind of food. Don't eat that anymore. You need to eat this kind of food instead. It's time for you to get up and get to work. Don't you know that it's much easier to make progress if you have someone who's helping you out? You know that, don't you? And here's where you need to be creative because some of you are not going to be able to get a coach who's gonna help you with Christian faith that, uh, like these athletes had a coach to help them with their work. But you can receive coaching from a good book. And you can regard it as your coach. You can ask for a person in the church to come alongside you and help you make progress in self-control. You can actually find a Christian man or a woman who's further along and say, would you coach me? You can and you should do that. If your issue is going to bed too late, do any of you have that issue? Yeah, you still need to get up early in the morning. And so you don't expect to wake up on your own. You use an alarm, right? Do you have an alarm that has snooze? That's like an anti-coach, right? Here's an, here's an idea. You ready for this? A student at Duke University invented an alarm clock which connects to your bank account electronically and your least favorite 
charity, and every minute you snooze, it donates money from your bank account to your least favorite charity. <laughs> that is a form of a coach. And, and to get self-control, you should get a coach. All right, here's number three. Third lesson from this image of the athlete is that self-control has a positive focus. Think about this. The self-control of those athletes is not only about the bad things which they should stop doing. That's a negative focus, right? But it's about a positive thing which they should start doing. That is, they don't only focus in on the bad food which they shouldn't eat, they have a good diet, and that's a part of their self-control, the good. They don't only focus on stop lying around on the couch all the time. They focus on the really positive work of this particular positive exercise. And trust me, if you think this morning about all the bad things that you want to stop doing, that's not a, a terrible thing to focus on. But if that's all you focus on, you won't get very far. Because in discipleship, self-control ought to focus on the positive good which God calls you to do rather than just the bad things which you're supposed to stop. Isn't it a lot more fun and energizing to work at doing something good than to try to make yourself stop doing something bad. Yes, it is, right? So pick some good things, right? If you wanna, um, if you wanna stop wasting your time on the internet, find something good to study that's in a book that has real paper and then stop on the internet, but go to that book. You see that? If you wanna stop talking bad about other people, that's a good thing to wanna stop, but choose to control yourself by talking good about people. And do this. Find a friend and then get together and there's another friend who's not there and start telling all the good stories about that other friend. Focus on positive things. That will help you. Here's the fourth lesson. And this really is an expansion of that third. Okay? Self-control needs a worthy goal. Okay? What I've described there, all of those small steps are good. But for self-control with the athlete, there has to be a worthy goal. There's a reason why that athlete comes and signs up and works for 10 months. And it's not for the sake of working for 10 months. Just as there ought to be for us together individually and as a church, a worthy goal of why we decide it's worth working at our faith and working at the self-control that will enable our faith to grow. Uh, come back with me uh, to the passage in, in 1 Corinthians 9 and Paul directly states the goal which is worth it, in contrast with the goal that the athletes have. And then we'll dwell on this for a minute. Here, he goes on in the second half of verse 25 to say, athletes do it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I, Paul's talking about himself here, I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. Listen now, he turns the metaphor to himself as if he is running. And he says very simply, I do not run aimlessly. That means I know where I'm going. I know exactly where I'm going. Or he envisions himself as a boxer. I don't punch as if I'm punching the air. I aim my work right to where it has to go. And then, very simply, Paul says, the athletes that I've put before your mind, they do it for a perishable wreath. That is, they want to win, and that's not bad. 
They, they want the fame and the glory and the, and the sense of accomplishment that comes with winning. There's nothing wrong with that, but, but in fact, there is a qualitative difference be, between their victory and the victory that we're meant to aim at. And it's a question uh, of longevity. That wreath which they win is going to perish. It's going to fade. And everyone will forget them by two years from now. But the, the goal that's before us is imperishable. That is, we are at work for a prize that is eternal rather than temporal. Now, please listen. Here's another place where we could miss the metaphor. Paul does not mean that we must race in order to be saved. Never, ever could Paul say that because he's the guy who could also say, if it were up to me, I would be utterly doomed because I can't even do the good things that I know I should do. Never, ever would he make the mistake of saying, you must run the race in just this way or otherwise God won't save you. He would never say that. What he means is you must run this race with purpose. And the purpose that you yourself are given to run for is eternal. And this is what he means, listen. And he really does mean this, that every man and every woman has by God a calling. The good work that God made you to do in the world, that is the race God wants you to run. Not so that he'll love you, he already loves you more than you could ever imagine. But this good race that he has created you to run is what he wants you to run so that you become the good that the world needs. You can only do that if you have self-control. And for Paul, he refers to it when he says, the proclamation of this good news. That's Paul's calling. His calling was to, to, to travel around proclaiming the gospel. And Paul knew, I need to do that with self-control so that I'm not disqualified. That means so that I can actually do the thing God created me for. And you need to do the thing that God made you for, every one of you. Maybe it is proclaiming the gospel. That's my calling, to stand and to speak like I am. Maybe there are some others in this place who are also called to do that. Maybe you're at Renaissance Church, so God lights a fire in your heart to become a proclaimer, and someday you do it here or somewhere else in the world. Maybe that's why you're here. But not everybody. Uh, maybe for you, the calling is to be hospitable. That's God's spiritual calling for you. Uh, or to be a helper. That is a spiritual gift. Or to be someone who's generous. Uh, I'm not making these up. All of these are in the New Testament as the, the race that God has set before some. To be a leader, that's a spiritual gift. Maybe that's your race, to lead. To lead in such a way that you help the community become what God has called it to be. Whatever it is, you must not run aimlessly. You must not box as though you're hitting the air. But instead, you must set before your own mind's eye this goal which is worthy because it is eternal in value, and then run the race with self-control. Listen, I read that email uh, from my friend about what Paul wrote in Romans 7, which is a, a text that might make it seem like all of this, all of my talking about self-control is meaningless, because what good does it do? Uh, listen to how that passage in Romans 7 actually ends after describing this dynamic which tortures him that he can't do what he wants to do. Paul asks this particular question, who will rescue me, wretched man that I am, from this body of death? He asks that question. Uh, another way to put that is, who's gonna give me the control that I need but don't have? Uh, and if you're asking that, the, the answer comes in an exclamation which Paul makes right after asking that question. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus our Lord. When he asks the question, who will help me, 
The immediate answer came to mind, of course Jesus will, because that's who he is. And that's true for Paul and for you. If you are a person who wishes that you had self-control and is ready to work at it, you can trust me. God himself is wishing for that and ready to give you everything you need to have it, even more so than you are. And so when you think of it, listen, let your dismay be turned into gratitude because Jesus is your friend and he is your companion and he's ready to be your coach right there with you and hold you and give you everything you need to be exactly what the world needs. So let's ask God in Christ to give us all of that. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for this calling which you have given to me. I thank you that I get to be the pastor at Renaissance Church, that I get to think and work at opening your word for these beloved men and women, my brothers and sisters in Christ each week. I ask very simply that the time we've spent together here this morning learning and thinking I would not just remain in our heads but would descend into our hearts. I pray that you would be actively transforming our minds and our hearts so that, as Paul suggested, we become men and women who are able to exercise self-control in all things. We know that we can't do it without you and we know that we don't have to. You've promised to be what we need. And so we ask yet again, for you to give us, as Peter promised you have, give us everything we need for life and godliness and help us thrive as your people as we work together at growing to become what the world needs. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.